there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. NASA's Pioneer 10 became the first man-made object to leave our solar system, something which makes me increasingly jealous of it with each passing day. And speaking of space, Sally Ride became our first U.S. woman to leave the planet on board Challenger 2. The NHL introduced the five-minute sudden-death overtime period, and somewhere a young Jean-Claude Van Damme celebrated. And finally, Yuri Andropov became president of the Soviet Union, while Pope John Paul II took the time to meet with Solidarity leader Lech Walesa during his visit to Poland, even as future Pope Palpatine was busy elsewhere. But enough about Return of the Jedi. It's time now for June of 1983. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hey, everybody. How are you? What's up, Scott? I just wanted to thank everybody out there. My kitty cat, Jones, passed away last week, and I got hundreds of people uh, offering me condolences and support. And I just want to say I'm getting better. I'm feeling a little better. It is unbelievable how much it helped to hear from all you people uh rest in peace my beloved kitty and thank you all that was really really sweet of you and it really helped me through time uh drew let's start off this month with a strange film uh that breaks one of our cardinal rules uh technically speaking it didn't even get a release in the united states in 1983 but we are including it why we're, we're including it because I think it gives us an opportunity to talk about something that happened a lot back then, but doesn't seem to happen now, which is, do you remember ads for this movie, Scott? Do you remember posters? I remember almost nothing about the return of Captain Invincible. Every once in a great while, there comes a motion picture that makes us believe everything's going to be just great again. Bring it on! That superheroes are a part of the American tradition. This is such a motion picture. This is the return of Captain Invincible. It's what the world needs now. Rated PG. This was like shock treatment where there were whole ad campaigns and the movies then never came out theatrically. That is so weird to me that you would spend the money on, you know, national magazine ads, newspaper ads, trailers, whatever, and then just make something disappear. Yeah, uh, this is an Alan Arkin, Christopher Lee superhero musical made by Philip (laughs) Mora in in Australia. It was co-written by one of our guests uh, on our bonus episode guest, Mr. Stephen D'Souza, who who, uh, informed us. That the film was had opened in Australia and it was set to be released in the States by Drew's favorite, Jensen Farley, 
Uh, and they went, Vincent Farley went bankrupt like a week before the release was about to happen. And then the return of Captain Invincible ended up becoming like a cult item on VHS because it was impossible to see in the States. Um, it's a bizarre movie. I know that there is a sort of growing cult for it or an attempted cult for it. I think largely that is centered around the music. Uh, there's some overlap with Rocky Horror Picture Show. This movie is a catastrophe, though. I, I'm not a big Philippe Mora fan in general. This guy, we'll talk about more of his work later in this decade, but he's a guy who I feel kind of like Albert Pyun. I feel like inside of him, there is the heart of a guy who knows what movies he's trying to make and wants to make, who's just not getting those movies there, who can't quite push the rock up the hill. I, I give the the screenwriters and the producers a little bit of credit. They, they found the nugget of a cool idea that, that other films would mine later, which is that he is an out of work, out of touch, old, retired a superhero who reluctantly comes back. Uh, and, you know, so other films like Hancock and um, uh, The Incredibles have mined these themes much better. And there are a few isolated set pieces that are kind of funny. Alan Arkin as Captain Invincible and Christopher Lee as his arch nemesis. At isolated moments, it nails the lunacy that it's going for. But for the most part, it's kind of aimless and not very funny. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is that it's at that point where the people that were making superhero stuff or the people that would make media about superheroes really hadn't grown up superhero fans. So they were coming at it from this sort of outside. Hey, I kind of get what superheroes are but there's i don't feel much love for the genre in this and i goes back to the condor man and the hero at large thing which is like we don't have an established superhero but if we can kind of piggyback on the current superhero craze by making a superhero themed movie they don't stand up so well well christopher lee has a musical number at the end of this film that is worth seeing just for the i can't believe that happened quality of it but doesn't really transcend the curiosity value right yeah so moving into our releases for this month we've talked a lot about airplane and the impact that had on film and how i don't think anybody ever figured out the math from airplane but you saw studios trying to figure out what made it a hit why how can we reproduce that and one of the sort of offshoots of that was the career of robert hayes where man nobody knew what to do with that guy I uh, came across this movie in uh, the video store, probably around 84, 85, and I rented it specifically because Robert Hayes is on the cover and it's called Utilities. Please turn out your lights. Please. Don't you see how important it is? If you don't show them how strong we are, they'll keep doing it again and again. I don't mean for a week or a day, but just for a minute, just to show them that they can't keep walking all over us. This is um, very, very Canadian. This is another of these Canadian movies where it's Canada trying to pass as America, which really sticks out in moments like when the FBI shows up. And those are the most Canadian FBI agents I have ever seen in my life, right down to the not really knowing how to use a badge. I, I'm tired of these like Capra wannabe movies. They're very forced. They're not yeah. sincere. 
hey, there's a social issue. Let's tackle it. And, you know, hopefully we'll get people cheering in this in the in the aisles by the end of this movie. How much of that do you think is people looking at what network did so beautifully that Chayefsky tapping into the sort of roiling anger and also hitting these really high satirical notes and guys wishing they could be like Chayefsky? Because I I do. I feel like there's they're aiming at we're going to show how like they try to pay in pennies, but it's legal currency, but the company won't take it. And then they kill an old lady in there. <laughs> Robert Hayes is a social worker who gets fed up with the system and fights back against the system by sabotaging the machines. And dude, this movie put me to sleep. There's also a whole totally different movie that's just about Robert Hayes versus Brooke Adams, the cop that he wants to fuck. God bless Brooke Adams, because, man, is she without her. I honestly don't know if I would have finished this movie. I like Robert Hayes, but he is boring in this movie. She adds us a slight pulse to this movie. The script is by, among others, David Greenwalt, who Buffy and Angel fans know intimately and love. And uh, Jim Kauf, who later wrote Stakeout. And I can kind of see some some of what Kauf did well later, which is the juggling of plots in what he's trying to do here. But this movie just can't pull any of it together and the guy who directed it uh harvey hart you know he did a lot of columbo episodes and a lot of universal tv and stuff i feel like a lot of his theatrical features are like this they're plotting and they he never really figured out how to nail it in a film we want to thank all of our listeners who call us our show like important to them and that we do a good job of introducing them to classic films (laughs) and then we open up our episode for june 1983 with the return of Captain Invincible, utilities, and something called Stacy's Knights. This is literally, I would say, the only thing that makes this worth noting is that it is the collision of Kevin Costner and Jim Wilson. Jim Wilson directed the film and later is the producer of Dances with Wolves and worked with Costner for years. For Costner, this is, yeah, we saw him in Night Shift, but this is the break. This is kind of the first time somebody gave him a big role in a movie. And he's not the lead, but he's the engine of the film, I would say. Yeah, he's a card, a blackjack uh, expert who is enlisted uh, by a woman who wants to take down the house and then something horrible happens and she comes back to get revenge against the casino. Oh, man. I know. I know. And he's not particularly good in it either. You know, it really I, I this is one of my I hate to keep breaking out the same cliches. But was this a pilot movie? Was this a movie that was supposed to be a pilot? It's very possible. And look, it's weird because there was a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of stuff that got repurposed to theaters that was supposed to be on TV. There's a lot of stuff from TV that or a lot of uh, theatrical stuff that they couldn't figure out how to release. that They would dump to television. And then there's stuff that like genuine art house giant Titanic titles, like another one we're talking about later this month that started as television in another country, but they're theatrical here. So it was a blurrier line back then. I This feels to me like this was going to be a week-to-week thing where after the end of this, Stacey's put together her Ocean's Eleven team that she can now use to take down guys who are screwing the little guy. When you look at this in Utilities, 
You could make these kinds of films right now. If you wanted to make a movie like Utilities right now and you were smart about it and you wanted to make a movie about how little people are being crushed and how their cities like Flint, I think there's some sharp material to do. And it's clear that watching these films right now, the early 80s felt a lot like it does right now, economically and socially. And it's really weird to get that echo where you realize that they're making films about things that feel very much like a concern right this moment again. These uh, social uplift movies, we'll call them, uh, weren't as prevalent in the 90s. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And you know what else was not prevalent in the 90s, Drew? (laughs) God. Oh, God. Is it time to watch another teen sex comedy? It is time to tackle one of the more infamous and, dare I say, popular teen sex comedies of the era, Private School. What they're teaching in private school isn't private anymore. Uh Uh-huh. Especially at the Cherryvale Academy for Girls. Uh-huh. Are you feeling romantic now, my darling? Where there's no limit. Uh-huh. Hi. Hi, sugar. On what you can learn. Where a guy like Bubba Beauregard at a girls' school like this has the odds stacked against him. Nine to one against him even copping a look. Fifteen to one against him ever getting a date. Twenty-two to one against you scoring in any way, shape, or form. Yeah! It takes Bubba Beauregard, the animal of the 80s, to make a private school go public. Private school. I recently got into it. There was a dude who, um, and look, I, I love the conversations we've had with our listeners and with the Patreons and with the people that are really into the idea of what this show is. I've noticed that there's one guy who really got a bug up his ass about this thing, and he does not like it when I describe these teen movies when I call them sex crimes. I'm going to say it again here. Private school is wall-to-wall filled with literal sex crimes. This movie is horrifying. On one hand, I could see how somebody would be annoyed at calling a film a sex crime, but I think that the clear indication here is that these films are filled with things that weren't appropriate then and are crimes now. And it informs the climate of pop culture. Like one of the reasons that I think looking back at this particular moment is interesting and important is because you do realize how there's an entire generation of guys who their early sexualization happened watching these things on HBO and on late night. And a lot of these movies, they only watched for one thing. And look, I was a 13, 14 year old guy. I get it. You tuned in because on Cinemax at a certain hour, there was a chance there were going to be boobs in a movie if you watched it. And a lot of these movies existed to be sold directly to that late night market and to play to that audience. The context in these films is an unrelenting context of guys are boners with feet. Women are either sluts or virgins and sex crimes are hilarious. And I feel bad for Betsy Russell, who I genuinely think had comic chops and is interesting. And I feel bad for Phoebe Cates, who we've already established is enormously likable on film and good. Like if you look at her work in Fast Time, she plays the comedy of it. She also gets the sadness underneath. She's a real actor giving a real performance. So I want better for these kids. Yeah, there's a I think there's a reason that leering is one of my favorite directors. Derogatory adjectives because certainly nothing wrong with seeing naked ladies, naked men in a sex comedy and, and as a human being enjoying that. But the problem is that these movies make it feel like it's gross. The men doing it are gross. A lot of the women are just they're either meat or they're rotten. You can't help but look at these movies and go, this is what you shot on this day. 
Like this was your big gag, like a beautiful girl topless on a horse. And then you're going to shoot it and then put it in slow motion. That's your big gag. You also have to assume that this was largely greenlit because it's universal based on the success of Fast Times. We talked about that. They didn't figure out that they even had a good film there. But you've got Phoebe Cates in this. Ray Walston shows up in it. And then you have little bits and moments like I kind of like the scene in the pharmacy where Martin Mull is clearly stonewalling her and embarrassing her about buying the condoms. An, uh, an uncredited Martin Mull. And it's kind of a funny scene in that he knows full well what she's asking for. And he's just pushing her button in making it as loud and as demonstrative as possible and asking her questions that she can't answer. And what's weird about this one is that uh, it's from the producers of Private Lessons, which also explains why Sylvia Crystal pops up as a French teacher. At some point, they either threw in a halfway sincere romantic story as filler in the middle of what's basically a, a movie about a bunch of slobby nerds who cross-dress to look at boobs. Matthew Modine and Phoebe Cates are like the romantic leads. And you take this movie in another direction with these leads, and this could be a well-regarded, well-remembered teen sex comic. Well, yeah, I mean, my God, uh, who's Phoebe Cates' best friend in this? It's Kathleen Wilhoyt, who I think is a delightful actor who always uh, is memorable in roles like this. There's no reason that with these elements you had to make this film, but this film is consistently lazy. And I think just consistently you feel bad for these kids who could have had a better shot at some sort of showcase for who they were. Private school. It's not good. Let's take a quick sidebar into a movie we're not really going to cover, but it did come out in 1983 and it starred Rex Harrison, Rod Taylor and Edward Albert. It's called A Time to Die. From the author of The Godfather, starring Rex Harrison, Edward Albert Jr., and Rod Taylor, it's Mario Puzo's A Time to Die. He was a young American agent ready to sacrifice his life for his country. Instead, they forced him to sacrifice his comrades and his young bride. Your wife died in the very first hour. Now he's ready to do anything to track them down. One by one. No matter where they hide. No matter what the consequences. A time to die. Drew, I know you had trouble tracking it down. A Time to Die is a World War II uh, thriller about a veteran who is hunting down Nazis and others who killed his wife. It was shot in 1979. It was released in 1983, well past the sell-by date for actors like Rod Taylor <laughs> and Edward Albert, based on a novel by Mario Puzo, and it's not very good. <laughs> Time to Die. I think that's fair. Okay, so can I offer up a hot take, Scott? You can. Hold on. Let me okay. put on my coat. Okay, get ready. Sorry, wait, wait. Let me take off my coat. Why would I put on my coat? (laughs) Okay, take off the coat, put on the goggles. All right. I think Porky's 2 is probably a better film than the first film. Pee-wee, Tommy, Beulah, meet... What kind of man would do a thing like that? Wendy... It's my birthday today. And the rest of the gang... What are you up to? Revenge. What are you up to? Are bouncing back in the never-ending fight to party all night. Porky's 2, the next day, rated R. Now playing at a selected theater near you. What happened here for Porky's 2 the next day is I think they realized it was a smash hit and it was puerile and we want to try and raise our game just a little bit. But here's the problem, Drew. It's not funny. 
Yeah, it's not. It's really not funny. And it, it, they lean heavily on, and I give them credit for this. They put Khaki Hunter front and center in this movie as one of the comic heavy lifters. And it almost feels like a huge reaction to how she's treated in that first film. The, the plot of this film is they want to do Shakespeare. There is a religious leader in town who doesn't want them to do Shakespeare because it's obscene. And then they battle over it. And there's a Ku Klux Klan subplot. So it feels like they took that running thread in the first film about anti-Semitism that was so soft-sold and then really leaned into it this time and said, "Okay, we're going to try and make them very decent kids this time. And everybody else, all the adults in town are shit. And that's that's the take. It's admirable, I think, that you say for your sequel, let's try to have more of a social conscience. Let's try and have more of a a hefty plot, something with some meat to it. The other side of that is you're not making movies with a social conscience. Don't try. Just make something that's funny. They're in a weird middle ground because it's kind of, you know, like Scott Columby in this. He was one of the caddies in Caddyshack whose storyline in that original four hour cut of the film was equivalent to the storyline of Chevy Chase or Rodney Dangerfield or Bill Murray. But he got cut because who gave a shit? He was the caddy. And so, like, there were a lot of actors from that film who were upset and he was one of them. These guys have been kicking around for a while. A lot of this cast have been kicking around for a while. And I do feel like Bob Clark thought, I've got this cast. Let me see what more I can do with them. You're right, though. It reveals the limitations of what they built with the first film, because by trying as hard as they did to bend it into something else, it's not Porky's anymore. It's a weird sequel because it has aspirations of legitimacy, which I do respect, but They do it really at the expense of the comedy because there's very few things. I would say there's three or four moments that that strike me as funny. And I will say it's probably better than Porky's three. Oh, it's definitely better than Porky's three. It's Uh, I don't remember, but uh, I will take your word for it. Unfortunately, you're going to find out. I'll tell you what I'm never watching again. Uh, Let me guess. Is it Burt Reynolds in Stroker Ace? can't stop a man like Stroker Ace. How's this look spectacular? He's rough, good looking, and never loses a big race. You got the key to the restroom? He's a man's man with a chin forged from steel. He's got easy going buddies and first class sex appeal. You got me drunk, didn't you? Burt Reynolds is Stroker Ace. Rated PG. Um... We just both ummed at the same time, and I, I think our we both our heads were probably tilted to the left like a confused dog. That's exactly how I'm sitting right now, yes. I believe we're both big Burt Reynolds fans. In general, I have a very fond, soft spot for him, yeah. He turned down terms of endearment to be in this movie. Yep. This is the turning point. And I went to Florida State University, and I went through the theater program, and Burt Reynolds, that's where he discovered that he didn't want to be a football player. He wanted to work in theater and film, and he's given back an enormous amount of money to that school and that theater program. I really, I feel like his heart, when you look at something like that, must be in the right place. You've got this screenplay partially written by Hugh Wilson, the creator of WKRP in Cincinnati, and you've got terms of endearment in one hand and this in the other, and so... This says a lot about who Bert was at that moment and what Bert's priorities were. And he leaned into the wrong thing, man. You got to admire that, that, you know, he was he liked his aw shucks, good old boy, car racing persona. And he wanted to pursue that in other films. Yeah. Personally, I would have tried other things, but I, I, I get it. He wanted to do laid back, goofy comedies with his friends. There's a lot of um 
callbacks to other films he's made with other people. Like he's got Jim Neighbors as his buddy from Best Little Whorehouse. He's got Ned Beatty as his sponsor and their relationship because the deliverance is so interesting. And like I get all the elements that Burt pulled into place. It's a catastrophe of a screenplay. It does not work. And the idea that it is about a NASCAR guy who signs a deal to be commercialized and then wants out of it. All right. Maybe there's a target in there. They don't hit that target. And unfortunately, what they graft onto the top of it is Lonnie Anderson as a Sunday school teacher who's for some reason doing publicity for the NASCAR team that he's working for, who Burt Reynolds spends the entire movie trying to take the virginity of. Gross subplot, but it reaches its apex in a protracted sequence where Bert tries to date rape her. I'm not exaggerating. He knows she doesn't drink alcohol, so he tells her it's non-alcoholic champagne, gets her drunk, she passes out, and then there is, and I timed it, a five-minute bit on whether or not he's going to strip her and rape her. It's literally played with him talking to the camera about, well, maybe I'll just take the top off. She doesn't look comfortable. And then I've got one boobs exposed. Maybe I got to do the other one. Then I've got to do, oh, well, I can't leave her like that. And then he leaves the room. Then he comes back. Then he's like, well, I mean, she wouldn't notice. The punchline that kills me, though, is the next morning at breakfast when she asks him, what did we do last night? And he asks her, what do you remember? And she says, I wouldn't have remembered anything. And he deflates because he realizes he could have raped her and it would have been fine. And at that moment, I hated this movie more than I've hated almost any film we've covered so far on this podcast. It's a disgusting scene. Totally agree. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, would an adult version of me in 1985 have been grossed out and offended? I I think that the way culture works is... In 1985, I don't think you or I would have been that offended by that joke. I truly don't. I just watched Animal House with the kids this weekend. And there's that scene in Animal House where the girl passes out and Larry wrestles with his conscience and he's got the devil and the angel on his shoulder. It's a very quick scene. The devil is terrible. Fucker, fucker, blue. And then the angel tells him not to. And you'll feel terrible if you do it. And he thinks about it for maybe a second. And then shrugs because, of course, he's not going to do it. Animal House in 13 seconds deals with this as a joke and then makes it clear only a scumbag chooses the other option. Burt Reynolds wrestles with it on camera for five minutes and almost makes the wrong choice. And it's not funny. This movie is for two hours his cosmopolitan centerfold. It's just him laying on a rug with a bare chest looking smug. And that's the whole film. All my notes. I wrote, is Hal Needham a pseudonym for nine pounds of cocaine? <laughs> this was actually, little known fact, this was actually directed by the pile of cocaine who later in the year would co-star with Al Pacino in Scarface. This movie makes Six Pack look like the Empire Strikes Back. You, you make this movie with a little bit of heart and a little bit of effort, and it, it is like Smokey and the Bandit. That's what <laughs> happens when you take something like this. And Well, let me just root for him. I don't give a shit if this guy gets out of his contract or not because he's a piece of garbage. Let me root for the guy. Let me let me see him as a guy who is a genuinely good dude, who is a goofball, have fun with his buddies, good old boy NASCAR guy who's likable. That's all just likable. Stroke race is one of the worst things that Burt Reynolds did in the 80s, and that's counting a lot. So now let's take the natural segue from how <laughs> To Peter Greenaway. Can you believe these came out the same month? The draft mid's contract. I wish you, Thomas, to be a discretionable witness. 
discretionable in my interest and in yours to an unorthodox agreement that would discredit me irreparably if discovered. The conditions of the agreement, Mr. Noyes, are my services as draftsman for 12 days for the manufacture of 12 drawings of the estate and gardens, parks and outlying buildings of Mr. Herbert's property. The sites for the 12 drawings to be chosen at my discretion, though advised by Mrs. Herbert. For which, Thomas, I am willing to pay eight pounds a drawing uh, to provide full board for Mr. Neville and his servant. And... Uh, and to agree to meet Mr. Neville in private and to comply with his requests concerning his pleasure with me. This is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast, because I have a hard time sometimes getting my head around the way things came out and the way things ran synchronous to each other. The idea that Stroker Ace and the Draftsman's Contract were in theaters on the same planet, much less at the same time, is mind-boggling. Okay, my little anecdote about Peter Greenaway is probably familiar to a lot of movie geeks uh, of our age. I had caught wind of Cook, Thief, Wife, Lover, went downtown to the Ritz Five in Philadelphia, saw it by myself, was enraptured and fascinated by this film. And then I went back and I rented, over the course of a few years, I, I saw Zed and Two Knots, I saw this one, I saw Drowning by Numbers, and I rewatched this and I love this movie. A rich woman whose husband is away hires an artist to come in and do 12 illustrations of their estate. And in the contract, he's willing to do that. But he includes a clause that allows him to have sex with her whenever he wants while he's working on the drawings. The execution is something totally different. It gets so much more involved because he wants yeah. out. Then the woman's daughter gets involved and she twists the contract to her benefit. And this movie is remarkably beautiful to look at. I love the fact that that all of the illustrations in the film and all the shots of the hands doing the illustrations, it's all green away. It's almost like the art house version of all the hands in Argento's films being him when he commits murders. It's fascinating to me that when this guy is illustrating the film, it's Greenaway. So we're feeling very connected to the filmmaker as artist. And I think Greenaway is one of the guys in the 80s who pushed the art house doors open. His films are so singular and they don't feel like anything else. They don't really even feel like they're of a moment. I could look at this movie and think he came out in 1971 or 1994. I love that about the worlds he builds. What starts as a disturbing sexual affair gradually evolves into what might be a murder mystery or might not involving her <laughs> the estranged husband who is away. And then he starts to suspect that he may or may not have been murdered. You got to pay close attention to the canvases, to what he's painting, because there yeah. are clues in his paintings as to the information that he's being given. And uh, it's a house of cards. It's a wonderfully uh, shot and, and meticulously put together House of Cards. I think it's fantastic. I still haven't seen all his films, but I like his work very much. And it's because they are so uh, florid. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you talking about that. Michael Nyman's score for this thing. 
his work with Michael Nyman in general. Oh, my God. For me, Nyman, the first time like I really got that he was him was with the piano because that score is so sort of omnipresent and, and was such a big deal that year. But then going back and realizing how many of his scores I had already fallen in love with kind of blew my mind. And this is one of those where the use of music in this film is just it's a weapon and it is. I find his films almost overwhelming on a sensory level. Like he's one of those filmmakers like no way where even if I don't totally think everything works as a piece of calculate, like it all connects and everything. I don't care because the experience is always so fascinating. You kind of absorb yourself in a Greenaway film like you would submerge yourself in a tub. Some of it is a little weird. Some of it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense at first glance, but you just absorb it as the whole experience. And there are some things in this film I don't fully get, but I wouldn't change a single frame of Peter Greenaway. It makes me feel as I watch it some of the same way the Wicker Man does or Kill List does, where gradually the hair on the back of your neck starts to go up because you realize... I don't trust anything that I'm watching. And dude, run. Whatever's happening, run. This isn't just a licentious and and abusive affair. This is something a lot more dangerous and, and interesting. Now we move on. We'll continue in the art house mode, Drew. It's an interesting kind of lineup here, back back to back to back, because I think this was a heavy month for some giant, giant films to grapple with. It took me a long time to finally work up the nerve to sit down with Fanny and Alexander. Now, Ingmar Bergman, at the height of his powers, shows you the world through the eyes of a child. Fanny and Alexander. More than a motion picture, it's a celebration. Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. When it came out, it was treated as sort of the end-all, be-all, ultimate statement. Bergman is a monolith. He's a giant. And it's daunting, I think, for a lot of film goers to even figure out where to start with him. I will admit that I was slightly intimidated by this film, not just the uh, expansive length of the film, but its reputation and that it's in Swedish. And I was figuring, am am I not going to be able to relate or am I... No, that lasted about 15, 20 minutes. The the American film this most reminds me of, and I think you'd probably agree, does this remind you a little bit of Barry Levinson's Avalon? They're memory pieces, and I think you're right. It's They're very much, I don't know that I fully got it the first time. It, it, it's a movie that you kind of soak in, and I didn't get what I was supposed to be real, what was supposed to be not real. And gradually I've come to believe that this is a film very much about how children remember things. There are memories I have of childhood where when I talk to my parents about it, they're like, Nope, not at all. You've got that totally wrong. Yeah. This is about nostalgia, but not, you know, a lot of times when we talk about nostalgia in related in relation to movies, we say, Oh, that means a movie that we loved when we were eight, but nostalgia can lie to you too. Nostalgia can also mean vague, unpleasant memories or well, and children see the world as I think children still are open to the supernatural when they're young and to the world not being what we think the world is. And so there are things that happen in this film where I don't even know how literally I'm supposed to take it or if I'm taking it as a kid couldn't process something and this is what they told themselves or this is how they internalize it. It takes place in 1907 in a small village in Sweden, and it is a well-to-do large family. In many ways, it kind of plays like a soap opera, but it also plays as a, a love letter to youth, even though it's sometimes ugly and painful. 
this film is probably 75% autobiographical and all of the formative moments are things that these memories made him what he is. And I love that the film moves through seasons and the opening Christmas celebration in this film reminds me of the wedding in Deer Hunter in that it is a long event that is meant to sort of be in almost real time and you get kind of lost in it. The difference for me is with Fanny and Alexander, the longer it goes on, the more I feel drawn into the feeling of being at that celebration. I really do feel like I remember it. It's not just about setting up the characters. It's about setting up the world, the, the entire universe for these children. These directors like Truffaut or like Bergman, when they work with children, it's not the way American directors work with children. Spielberg is one of the few American filmmakers that I think has ever given children the respect that some of these European directors do, where you ask them, to participate fully as artists. And the kids in this movie, there's nothing childlike about the work they do. It is terrific and heavy, and it is a feast of a movie. Uh, this movie is well known for being extremely long. It was originally uh, produced as a miniseries for Swedish television. Yeah. That version runs five hours. The theatrical version, <laughs> which is what I watched, runs just over three hours. I certainly don't think it's lacking. I've done both. And I can honestly say I prefer the theatrical. Bergman preferred the television version. And I get it. He is one of the few filmmakers who ever worked in the supernatural or the metaphysical as much as he did. And yet somehow escaped ever being called a genre filmmaker or ever being marginalized or, you know, Seven Seal is literally about a dude who sits down and plays a chess game against death. And there are throughout his movies, there are moments of extreme fantasy and dreams and horror and things that anybody else might have gotten uh, marginalized or pigeonholed for. It's because at the heart of everything, all he's ever doing is asking the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive and how does it feel? This is his family movie. To me, this is the ultimate movie about how it is to live in a family and especially a giant one with hallways and corridors and locked doors and rooms that you don't go into anymore and stories you don't tell. You know, it's like, say you're staying with somebody for six months and you kind of get the impression that the, the husband and wife are estranged and then... Yeah it slowly dawns on you that, no, they hate each other. You know, it's like you start to slowly piece these relationships together. These are the anecdotes that make up this man's life. And what, what you would consider like superfluous in the course of a narrative, it doesn't matter. He's just adding all these touches that make the meal uh, feel complete. We talked about directors who kind of at the end of their career sort of peter out and there's really sad and disappointing movies. You want to talk about a guy who until the very end was not only in control of what he was doing, but I would argue kept getting richer and more interesting and more in command. This is the work of a guy who 100% knew everything about what he was doing and was making exactly what he meant to make. Now we will continue our art house trend. A very interesting French film based on actual events called The Return of Martin Guerre. Connaissait-il quelques détails intimes que seul un mari connaît de sa femme? Il savait les moments où j'aimais jouir de lui. Et les mots que j'aimais entendre avant, pendant et après. I'm a big fan of this movie and it's nice to have a Gerard Depardieu performance I can definitively point at as this is the thing I like about him because there's a lot of his work I don't like. I love this one. 
Yeah, he's fantastic in this. And it's about a, uh, a man who returns after eight years. Turns out he may or may not be an imposter. His wife is convinced that he is the real Martin Gare. A, a person from his past shows up and throws a monkey wrench in the works. And this is at about the point that I realized, oh, this was remade as Summersby. Yep. So in 1993, uh, Jodie Foster and Richard Gere. That's a good film. It is really interesting. It, it goes to some unexpected places. It's a very clever screenplay. There's a reason it got remade, which is it's such an easy story to get the hook of and to understand like what the appeal is. And it's really the question. If it's not her husband, why would she say it is? If it is her husband, why is there any question about it? And that tension that exists in the film is I think handled really terrifically and ultimately builds to what I think is a satisfying and great answer. I love why she does what she does and what the answer is to it. And I wonder how many times something like this could have happened before you had photo IDs, before you had the records we have now, before you had the when people did go away for a decade to war or for exploration or for travel because they were opening trade routes or whatever. And then we come back. It was a different person that would come back to you after that amount of time anyway. And that's one of the interesting themes in the movie is let's say it is him. Yeah. Wouldn't war change somebody drastically? That kind of argument. It's really interesting. You know what, what else is really interesting, Drew? The film we're about to tackle. I'm glad you think so, because I have had a poor opinion of this film for a long time. And I had a very interesting experience rewatching The Survivors. Robin Williams is a little crazy. Hey, 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 hey. Walter Matthau is a little fed up. No, not a little, a lot. Jerry Reed is a little dangerous. I look like a robber to you. When they declare war on each other. This one has your name and address on it. You could die laughing. You can all go home now. Everything is under control. Let me rephrase that. The Survivors, rated R. Coming soon to a theater near you. This is one of the movies that I loved as a teenager. Kind of forgot about. It's a mess. I don't care. I like this movie. I think Walter Matthau and Robin Williams are a very interesting comedy duo. I think the movie, instead of just being a simple vehicle about a stuffy guy and a weird guy, they tried some interesting social commentary. Well, first of all, I like Michael Ritchie. I think Michael Ritchie was uh, like Jonathan Demme. He was a very human satirist where I he loves satire. He loves deflating power. But I think he cares deeply about common people. And I think that that is something that makes Ritchie's work whether it's Smile or The Candidate. I like the opening here where um, Every Man a King is performed by Randy Newman. The song was written by Huey Long as a campaign song. And if you know the history of Huey Long and how he inspired all the King's men and what he was as a power broker in Louisiana, that song as a opening choice for this movie is a really great Michael Ritchie joke. And you realize, okay, He's going to throw some punches here and we'll see what it is. And then you get off to this absurd start where Robin Williams gets fired by a parrot and you not you're not really sure, like, what is the reality of this movie? And very quickly, it becomes clear the reality is insane. And because of that, they're allowed a lot of latitude in how they tell the story about somebody who feels powerless and is told your way to get power back is to get a gun teach yourself to kill because it's going to come down to you versus somebody else at some point and you're going to have to kill them. And if there's not a movie to be watching right now, 
I can't imagine a better like satirical piece to revisit. This is sharp stuff and Robin Williams in it. Terrific performance. Yep. My favorite aspect of the movie is that they just they become friends. They're held up by a Jerry Reed. He's very funny. God, Jerry Reed is really good in this movie. There's a scene in this film that is one of the best comedy scenes I've seen in a while because of the way it pays off. It's where Jerry Reed is going to kill them and his wife stops him because she's convinced he's having an affair and that's why he's always on the road. And when he finally assuages her fears by saying it's that he's just going to go kill somebody and that twist pays off. But that is a great scene and really well played. But the problem with the movie, I think, is that it doesn't know if it wants to be a buddy comedy with an R-rated edge or if it wants to be like somewhat acerbic social satire with a potentially happy ending. It's like it really is kind of all over the place, but I like it. (laughs) Yeah, it loses some steam and it doesn't it doesn't hit all of its targets when it finally gets out to the survivalist camp. And you've got the guy that's kind of a bullshit artist who's running it. Even so, they hit enough of that target that I like the sort of broadsides they take at that fear industry. The idea that you're selling these losers more fear and you're telling them I'm the solution to your fear when in reality, all you're doing is stoking that fear. And again, that's right now. We get that right now. There's a scene late in this film where Rob Williams flips out and I'm watching this movie and I am like misting up, got a little tear in my eye thinking, what a beautiful actor this guy is. That moment right there is when Hollywood went, holy shit, the world according to Garp. Yeah, he's good in that. But this moment where he's laughing and crying at the same time and he's half naked, he's phenomenal. How many times in his career did Robin Williams flip out and strip naked? Because I'm I can count the Fisher King. This I think Robin had a real fondness for getting naked and uh, just letting things go. And you know what? I'm all for it. Even if this movie was weak, those two comedians together, Mathau and Watt Williams together, you'd have to work really hard to make those two together not work. There is a moment early on when Robin gets fired by a parent and then he goes out and he talks to the secretary and she ends up pulling a gun on him to get him to leave the office and her final dismissal of him. Where she just says, you're an ungrateful turd. I started laughing so hard at that point and realized I'm kind of on board with this film because it's going to be a Job story to some degree. And Robin plays such a good Job. This movie does such a good job of heaping the shit on him at the beginning that you really do hope at some point he's going to get his. Real quick, let's get into the marketing for this movie. Honestly, I still couldn't tell you the premise of this when I sat down to rewatch it because the poster and the title and the... I don't know that I've ever had anybody concisely explain to me what The Survivors is about. Yeah, the posters make it seem like it's a movie about Robin Williams being a gun nut. That kind of happens late, late in the film. And it's interesting and all. That's not entirely what the film is about. And it ignores how he got there, which is 90 percent of the film. So, yeah, it's it's a really weird choice. It's such a key piece of the puzzle in terms of how films land. And yet it's one of the dirtiest things for film lovers to discuss sometimes because there is a sense that it's the ugly uh, necessity part of the business. But dude, it drives what gets made. It drives how things do. It drives the few. And we're about to enter a stretch here where marketing motivated all of these choices. These next three or four films were greenlit entirely because of marketing. If you're, if you know, you're going to get to make a film, do you phone it in? Do you give it everything you have? How do you approach it? The answers to those questions 
define the filmmakers of this decade. And you're right. Michael Ritchie is smart enough that he approached the survivors like just a regular filmmaker developing a thing. The marketers didn't know what to do with that movie by this point because we were entering the high concept 80s. They, If it wasn't one sentence, they didn't know how to tell you what it was anymore. Now we're going to move on to a very easily one of the most controversial films of the 1980s. Do you want to see something really scary? This summer, four acclaimed directors, George Miller, John Landis, Joe Dante, and Steven Spielberg, take you to another dimension. Twilight Zone, the movie, rated PG. Uh, there's no way to start talking about this film uh, without acknowledging up front that, yes, this changed the landscape because of what happened behind the scenes. You can't really discuss Twilight Zone, the movie, without discussing the horrible accident that occurred on set directed by John Landis. A, a helicopter accident killed actor Vic Morrow and child actors Micah Din Lee and Renee Shinyi Chen. Although I do admire John Landis very much reading about this story, Drew, I cannot fathom how everybody was acquitted on that. One of the reasons people were acquitted was because some of them left the country. And I am a great admirer of the film career Frank Marshall. But there's a reason that Frank Marshall and Steven Spielberg didn't set foot in the country between the day after that accident and 85 And it wasn't just because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was shooting overseas. They were very careful not to be here. Landis carried the weight of this and still does. And I have had several instances in my life where I've been around Landis and this has come up. I've never heard Landis dismiss the weight of what happened ever. I've never heard him downplay it or say that it wasn't a big deal or that it wasn't his fault or that he there's no movie that should ever cost a human life ever. Before this film, there was a recklessness to John Landis, and it had followed him from film to film. And there were stories about Blues Brothers. There were stories about, you know, stunts that he did on films where he just kind of didn't give a shit because he loved the way it looked. Obviously, that changed. And everything about John Landis had to change after this. When we were working on Masters of Horror, he was up doing prep for his episode, which was going to shoot after us. He was walking around the sound stages one day, and there was a Teamster sitting there reading the book outrageous conduct about the helicopter accident, about the entire incident, just reading it openly while John's walking back and forth. And John noticed it. And the guy was making sure John noticed it. And John didn't say anything. And then finally, about the third time he walked by, the guy cleared his throat and said, hey, John, I was wondering, would you sign this for me? Mm. The balls on him kind of blew my mind. John's reaction, John stopped and he said, look, man, I really don't appreciate that. And and he kind of explained to him where he was coming from, which is, look, I've I've had to deal with this for a long time. You really don't know anything beyond the book you're holding. So I don't know why you're going to bother me about it, but it's not appropriate. And I really don't appreciate it. And the guy went, cool. But seriously, would you sign it? And then John lost his mind and left at a grindhouse screening when Planet Terror was playing. John Landis is sitting two rows in front of me at an early press screening, and there's that scene where they fly the helicopter through the zombies, and they tilt it down to cut zombie heads off, and people started to turn to stare at him. It drove it home to me that he carries that with him everywhere, and that no matter what he does or where he goes, it's a constant reminder. So anybody who thinks he got off light... I don't think he got off light, but I think that if he carries that guilt with him every day, that's appropriate. I think it's appropriate. I don't know that it's appropriate for other people to keep handing it to him. And then on top of it, 
It's not a very good segment. Can you imagine having to finish your movie? Because when this, by the time this film came out, obviously this had been such a big conversation and it had been such a big incident that it kind of redefined uh, for a lot of these guys what kind of films they would make and how they would work and what their careers would be after this. But Twilight Zone still had to come out. And there was even the question of would they include it? And then they decided to. And I still don't know that that's the right choice. It makes this movie a weird monument to that. Maybe you should have just left it out. Of course, none of the footage, including the children, was used. They rewrote the whole segment. And I think to the short's detriment, because it just kind of ends on a really down note. And it's not a very interesting note. But let's just attack Twilight Zone, the movie, like it's creep show. The wraparound is uh, iconic, but not all that interesting. It's a joke. It's a joke with a punchline, and then it's gone. I think segment one, which is Landis, uh, Vic Morrow plays a a bigot who is uh, warped back in time to various events and learns the error of his ways. It's more of like a setup than an actual real story. I can see how it fits into the Serling model, like in terms of what they wanted it to be. So where's the third act of that story? There should be a third act of that. Exactly. And there's not really a clever play on it. And it's a shame because that's it's not a bad premise. The second short uh, is by Steven Spielberg. It might be the most saccharine, mawkish thing he's ever done. It's down there with Hook. It's pretty goddamn bad. But even at a piece of garbage like that, Scatman Crothers is magic. And it's so hard for me to not like that segment because he shows up and he starts talking. And I'm like, whatever, Scatman, let's just go hang out. It's cool. I, and I then- could listen to Scatman <laughs> Crothers read a cereal box, no doubt. Yeah. And then, thank God. Joe Dante shows up to save the day (laughs) in an adaptation of a brilliantly twisted story about a godlike child who lives in a house that looks like the inside of a Chuck Jones cartoon. And he terrorizes his family with Rob Bottin monsters. Yay. This short is a distillation of probably everything I love about Joe Dante. It is absolutely fascinating. It's a little creepy. It's a little funny. This segment single-handedly salvages the last two. I love this segment. I love the last segment. I think they are both the directors unleashed. And that's what this should have been. It's interesting that they went with the anthology format at all, because you know they almost didn't. This was for a long time. They talked about doing a single-story movie and then having that be the brand. Twilight Zone presents and then whatever the single-story movie was. And for a very long time, Miracle Mile was going to be this film. That script... That story, that premise, everything was Twilight Zone, the movie, until they decided they thought anthology worked better. I don't know that that was the right choice, or if it was the right choice, they really should have committed and planned another Twilight Zone, the movie very quickly so that they had more anthology segments ready to go. You talked about how the the inside of the Joe Dante thing, it feels like a Warner Brothers cartoon, and you've got those crazy Rob Bottin creations that are three-dimensional cartoon creatures. And then I love that John Lithgow is a cartoon in that final segment. John Lithgow's work in that is next-level crazy. He is so committed from the opening shot. It's not a case where he ramps up slowly. He starts at 100 and then goes to 190 by the end of this thing. Uh, that was directed by your pal, George Biller. Oh, my God. And, and directed like he's being chased. Uh, it is a fantastic. The original is a Richard Matheson short that uh, William Shatner starred in the Twilight Zone episode. And that's a very good episode. I do believe that Mr. Miller improves upon it in every way. It's phenomenal. And you, and you know who our buddy on the wing is, right? No, that's Robert Picardo. 
the great Robert Picardo out on the wing. It's funny because Picardo for a while had kind of a rep as a suit guy between that and explorers. And like he did a lot of makeup work and suit work. And I love the thing on the wing. I think it is a terrific, nasty little monster. Great gremlin when they show the close up and he does the finger thing. Oh, it's very good. Very yeah. good. Twilight Zone is a mixed bag. Very fair. You know what else uh, is a mixed bag? Oh, I don't know if I agree with you. I think this might just be a bad bag. Just say what? What? The Superman franchise. Oh, yes, you are correct. And here's why. I don't think I've ever gotten more tweets from people defending something before we talked about it, where I am. I'm sorry, but your childhood is wrong. (laughs) Your childhood is wrong. Say it again. Your childhood is so wrong. If you are still defending this movie to me or giving this movie any slack, no, this is a terrible, terrible movie. Full stop. It is a terrible Superman movie. It is a terrible Richard Pryor movie. What's your response to this? Well, Superman 3 is still better than Superman 4. Okay. A bullet in the foot is better than a bullet in the head. It's still a bullet in your body. I don't want to get shot anywhere, and Superman 3 is definitely an open-sucking wound. Alexander Salkine presents Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor. Uh, watch the trees. As you've never seen them before. With more action. More twists. You're going to go down in history as the man who killed Superman. No. And more fun. Oh, I'm sorry. Than Superman has ever had before. Superman 3, rated PG, starts Friday, June 17th. All right, where do we begin? Let's start with that opening title sequence. Let's start where they started. No, 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 let's save that. I want you to <laughs> give, give our listeners, if you would, a little background on Donner, Donner, and Lester, and then Lester. Uh, yeah, okay, so here's the math problem that we're facing in the Superman franchise. Superman 1, largely successful, because it's almost entirely Richard Donner. Superman 2, mixed bag. There's a lot of really good Superman 2. There's some terrible Superman 2. There's Richard Donner Superman 2, and there's Richard Lester Superman 2, and they're all mixed up together. It's chocolate and Miracle Whip. So this third one is 100% Miracle Whip. It's just that, and it's all Richard Lester, and Richard Lester doesn't just hate Superman. Richard Lester misunderstands every appealing thing about Superman fundamentally. There is not one comedic beat in this film that works. Not one. And it all, as Drew mentioned, the stage is set with this interminable opening credit sequence with is, uh, uh, I don't get what we're looking at here. What are we watching? I feel like the entire film would play a little bit better if you just on the soundtrack, just put a constant fart sound for the entire film, because that's what it is. It's just a slow release fart. A lot of superhero films early on, because you really didn't have the money or the technology to get super powered fights right. They would take the powers away from the superhero or they would make the superhero fight himself in some way or and this movie commits all those sins in one. They take his powers away for a big chunk of the film. So he's asshole Superman. And then once he's done being asshole Superman, it's resolved by him having a ridiculous metaphorical fight with himself in a junkyard. 
it's nonsense. I I get that it's staged well, and this is the argument that, that I keep getting from people that the, you know, there's people who oh, there's this moment in the film where the the woman turns into a robot and it really traumatized me as a child. All right, first of all, cupcake, you were a little tender because that's not scary. I know there's a lot of scary stuff from the '80s that we saw as kids. That is a ridiculous beat in the middle of a ridiculous sequence, and if that traumatized you, you were you saw it too young because it's not scary. There's other red flags too. Tell the story about how Richard Pryor got involved in a superhero movie. Uh, I, he owed Coke money. Um, no, I, I thought I could have sworn I remembered the anecdote how he mentioned on the Tonight Show that he loved Superman. What do you go to? What do you go to see? Pictures? What kind? You, you go to see comedies mainly? Oh, I want to see Superman too. Superman too. That's my. That's what I'm waiting on to see. Really? Yeah. So did you see Superman one? Sure. Well, this one, you know, remember the people was in the glass? Yeah. Well, he goes and gets them. Yeah. And brings them back to Earth accidentally. And there's four Supermans. I didn't know that. Yeah, and a one Superwoman. Oh, it's going to be good. The previews are great. We were sitting in the theater. Yeah, it's Super! <laughs> we'll be right back. And the yeah, Salt Times reached out and said, we want you to be in a Superman movie, and they wrote it around him. It's funny. I was talking before we went on the air. I was talking with Bobby, uh, our producer, and he made the comparison between this film and... Uh, Star Trek four, which Star Trek four, if you know the backstory on that, was developed as a earthbound time traveling story so that Eddie Murphy could be in it. And he was going to be the Catherine Hicks character. And that whole thing was designed so that Eddie Murphy, who was a rabid Star Trek fan who told Paramount, I want to be in Star Trek, could be in a Star Trek movie. Thankfully, somebody at Paramount realized that's crazy and didn't let it happen. And somebody at Warner Brothers clearly didn't give a shit and said, Richard Pryor's got bills. Let's go ahead and put him in Superman 3. It's a perfect example of cynically grabbing somebody who is talented and hot at the moment and casting them in a film in which they have no place. None. And his character is, I'm sorry, it's a garbage character. He's a guy who at the beginning is having an argument in the unemployment office because he can't get work anywhere. And then they put him in front of a computer and within a day, he has not only become the world's preeminent computer programming genius, but he has designed a program that will siphon money out of bank accounts, little half pennies, and make him a millionaire, which draws the attention of the film's big bad guy, who then puts him to work as a criminal hacker mastermind for him. What? The hell movie am I watching? Let me just say, as a 13-year-old sitting in a theater watching 25 minutes of Richard Pryor unemployment shtick where Superman hasn't shown up yet, I remember thinking, what lunatic made this film? If they had real respect for Richard Pryor, why not let him play the villain for Robert Vaughn? You know, yeah. like let him be the, the megalomaniacal monster. I feel like his agents had a running bet to see if they could keep him from ever being in a good film. It's clear that in many ways, Superman four is worse. It's cheaper. Yeah. It's chintzier. It's dumber. But when I look that this still had some Warner Brothers backing and it still had some sheen of legitimacy, this sequel is almost worse because it didn't have to be. This is just an unconscionable movie. I can't believe there was ever a point where there's a studio that owned a property as big and as successful and as iconic as Superman that made the decision this was the story they had to tell next. Out of all the Superman stories that have been told by 1983, really? This is why for so long 
we're, we're going to talk about the horrible fantasy films this decade and why fantasy was considered just a garbage genre for so long. This is why superhero movies were a joke and almost impossible to get somebody to commit to of any real pedigree. You either had to overpay them or you had to pray to God they love this stuff. For me, Superman 3, I, I the reason it hurt so much was because I knew there was nothing better around the corner. It's not like there were other superhero franchises to go watch. True. It's so true. You have your kids watch something like uh, even a good one, even like something like Willow. You'd be like, it's like showing somebody an airplane from 1910 and going, you flew in that, you know, like really? But yeah, yeah, we flew in that. Um, Let's move now from an an atrocious sequel that I think people give a lot of credit to that shouldn't to an underrated sequel. Yes, sir. I think a lot of people should give another chance to. It's 22 years later. Oh, I'm, I'm all right now. You sure? Sure. And Norman Bates is home. I'm telling you, there was a note from my dead mother. Psycho 2. The mystery continues. Rated R. 100% with you. And I have loved Psycho 2 since 1983. I just had the experience a couple of weeks ago where I screened Psycho and then Psycho 2 for the kids because I knew I was going to be rewatching this. We did Psycho one night and oh my God, did it play like they loved it. They loved the mystery of it. Drew, how do you get your 12 and 10 year old son to sit down with this film from 1960? I, you know, we've talked about Psycho in the past. They've asked questions about it because it's a title that's out there. Like they've heard the title. And so now that they've asked about horror, Psycho was one of the ones that they had kind of mentioned. And I knew I'd be watching Psycho too. So I just told them, I said, look, there's a very famous one. Um, it's black and white. It's by Alfred Hitchcock, who I know you've asked about, but you really don't, you haven't seen much of yet. And when it came out, it really scared people. Psycho is now old enough that when we were kids, the shower scene was ruined for me before I saw the film. I knew the shower scene was coming. I knew what it was. I knew why it was. I had already absorbed a lot of Psycho because of pop culture because it was such a big title. You know, for my kids, Psycho is so old that the shower scene is now out of pop culture again. It's not as omnipresent as it used to be. So when Norman shows up, Norman plays his whole first scene. Toshi made me laugh because he's like, he seems nice. And I'm like, dude, I love you. I love I love the fact that you have no idea what's coming. And the shower scene happened. They were ahead of it. They knew it was mom. They totally they had mom all figured out. And then as the movie played, they really didn't know what was coming. So when the end of the film and they finally have the scene where they turn Norman's mother around and it's the mummified mother, <laughs> Toshi's first thought, because he was trying to figure out how it all worked, was, oh, my God, she's a zombie. And then Norman came through the door and he put the pieces together. What was amazing was that Psycho 2 played the same way. It was just as big a mystery and they were just as involved. And because they had just seen the first film, their sympathy for Norman was fascinating. They really hoped he was better. This is not just how you make a sequel, but this is how you make a sequel to a classic film. The director, Richard Franklin, who was just getting it started, done road games, It's clear that whoever was handling this project for Universal said, all right, we got to do this right. Not only if we're going to do Psycho 2, and we are because it's going to make money and we'd be stupid not to. If we're going to do it, we need to get somebody who knows Hitchcock and loves Hitchcock. And their list was probably Brian De Palma and Richard Franklin. 
And I don't even want to give too much away. And mm-hmm. what I love the most about Psycho 2 is that it does pay a lot of respect to Hitchcock and his style of filmmaking. But it also realizes that this is 1983 now and yep. horror fans are a little bit more inured to this stuff. And you need to get a little more brutal. You need to get what a little a more balancing act. Can you imagine trying to walk that tightrope as a creator between respecting the original and, and forging your own ground? Well, and it's one of these legacy sequels, like we're seeing a lot of now with uh, the new Halloween or with the Star Wars films, where enough time had passed that bringing these actors back, not just the characters, but the actual actors was fascinating because seeing what Anthony Perkins looked like 23 years later as Norman again, I got to say he drops right back into it so beautifully. It's a terrific performance by him. Also, Vera Miles, who I think. Talk about picking up where you left off and what would that person be like 23 years later after simmering for all those years about that person? Do you remember much about the critical reception to this film when it came out? I really don't. And I'm I'm guessing that people probably didn't give it a fair shake. Tom Holland's script is very respectful. I do remember this. I read the Robert Block novel, Psycho 2. Norman Bates kills his way out of an asylum because Hollywood is making a movie about Norman Bates and the events from Psycho. And he goes to Hollywood and then there's a question because there's a car accident. And the question is, is someone else killing around the film or did Norman make it to Hollywood and he's killing them to stop the making of the movie? So Block's film is this inside Hollywood, behind the scenes sort yeah, of. I, that sounds like an interesting novel, but I totally not, different. I don't think I'd like that for a movie. This is so much more human and it is so much more just about if Norman gets out. And wants to be better. Can he? Norman's the hero of this movie. Whether he's crazy or not, he's the hero of this movie. Because you're either rooting for him to be innocent and someone else is doing everything. Or you're rooting for him to conquer what it is that is making him do these things. But he's the hero. And I kind of think that's genius. Yeah, I think the film was probably unfairly dismissed. Like, how dare you sequels? You know, like, how dare you make a sequel to Psycho? And yeah. when, when the film is brand new, you still have that. But now that Psycho 2 is as old as Psycho was back then, if not older, the lifespan of the film gives it more credibility, I think. It is a fantastic sequel. I know horror fans like it. It's got some great jolts. Let's not spoil anything. Well, and several several of you have have brought up that Road Games is something you weren't familiar with and that you're happy that we, we covered it here. There's a reason Richard Franklin got this film, which is not only was he stylistically, I think, the right choice, but he had a direct personal connection to Hitchcock. They corresponded, and I think Franklin was obsessed with him. They could not have made a better decision. Uh, while I obviously don't think it's the masterpiece that Psycho is, I think it's a damn good sequel, and uh, let's move on. Okay, so let me read a real a quote real quick before we move on. This is from comic writer, director, actor Peter Cook, who, brilliant man, wonderful comedian, and the quote is, this all started when Keith Moon, Sam Peckinpah, Graham Chapman, and myself were dining at Trader Vic's. Whatever film this is, better be awesome, with that as the first sentence of any anecdote about it. You say Keith Moon? Yeah, Keith Moon, Sam Peckinpah, Graham Chapman, and Peter Cook were sitting around one night, and Keith Moon was the one that said, I want to see a movie about pirates. A comedy about pirates. Okay. Okay. 
Take some of Marty's pet pythons. Like Graham Chapman, here today, going tomorrow. John Cleese, he's out of sight, his blind view. Eric Idle, great job, kid. Just knock me out. <laughs> Put them together with Chong and Cheech. What did you say? And all the crazies who kept young Frankenstein in stitches, like Madeline Kahn. Love you, love you, love you. Peter Boyle, he could use a big hand, folks. And Marty Feldman, here's looking at you, kid. Throw in some cheap jokes, some sheep jokes. Trust me, folks, it's a shipload of laughs. Yellowbeard rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. It is a disaster, and it is a movie that... I love Graham Chapman, but you you know you're in trouble when the most vicious, terrifying, gigantic pirate of all time is played by Graham Chapman. Um, him as a giant, ferocious, terrifying animal—that's a weird choice, man. But did, like, they, maybe that was that part of the joke. Not the way they play it in the movie. He's supposed to literally be terrifying, and he's supposed to be super strong, and he's supposed to be like they play him as he really is the thing that everybody talks about, like. The premise is Yellowbeard is the most ferocious pirate of all time. He's captured. He goes to jail. His treasure is out there somewhere. When he gets out and he goes looking for it, the map to it is on his illegitimate son. The lead, the son, was supposed to be a major role and was Adam Ant. They had Adam Ant cast and he rehearsed. He hated what, what it was becoming and he quit. And then they tried to cast Sting. Sting was given the role and wanted the role and was going to play it. And then the American producers were upset because they needed more Americans in the film. Here's the one that's going to kill you, Scott. There was a period where it was a musical. Harry Nilsson wrote songs for it. And then they decided not to make it a comedy musical. There's a Harry Nilsson score for this thing somewhere. I wrote down, I assume, I'm guessing that you saw the 45-minute documentary that was made on the set of this film. I was not able to dig it up, but there is a documentary out there called Group Madness that was shot on the set of this film. And I'm very curious to see it because I bet you watching these actors get ready for their shoot for 45 minutes is better and more entertaining than yellow. Yeah. Is there a film in existence that has more rape jokes per minute than Yellowbeard? Everybody in this thing is like, okay, is this crazy and outrageous yet? It feels like a lot of funny people were invited to participate in a Monty Python sketch and realize that they're not up to that task. Bottom line, Chong plays a character named El Segundo. So that kind of explains where the uh, film sensibility is. It's a disaster. And it's maybe per capita, one of the most overstuffed, terrible comedies ever made. Uh, Here's a movie that I liked it when I was a kid. And now I think it's garbage. I can't believe I ever liked Octopussy. Gems, please be careful. First time on network television, the one that surpasses them all. Mr. Bond. James Bond. Nobody does it like 007. Am I to be your target for tonight? Step on it. This is absolute madness. Roger Moore is James Bond. Go out and get him. In Octopussy. Next. This one is probably the most indecipherable Bond movie there is. There, I mean, it makes no sense. I have gone back to this movie repeatedly over the years for various professional projects after swearing off it. I I swore off this in Moonraker and View to a Kill, saying I would never watch them again out of the classic Bonds. So I did. I went back and I watched it, and uh, I was reminded that this is a terrible movie. In my brain right now, I think View to a Kill might be better than this. We'll talk about that in a couple of years. We'll yeah, but that later, but but this is this is um, jam packed with stupid and it's jam packed with awful. God, why does this movie have that 
infantile, childish sense of humor. I fucking hate it. Well, this movie has a lot of weird stuff going on. First of all, it's the first time the existential nightmare of Q's existence is obvious in the series, where Q, still played by the same guy, is now 75 years old, and James Bond is younger and it just starts to get weird at this point where now Q is this hectoring old man doddering around and yelling at him and you realize that they've they by keeping him around it's just starting to get weird there's no M had just uh, Bernard Lee had just passed away so yep. they up the Q uh, bit I guess what is what is James trying to stop this time Drew there is a, a Fabergé egg that has something to do with a nuclear something um, all I know is that there is blatant racism in this movie. And it is that early 80s, the Indian subcontinent is terrifying and you're all dark weirdos. There's a scene in this movie where, no joke, James Bond hustles a guy for money, then turns around and he's being escorted around by a couple of Indian uh, sort of handlers. And he gives them some of the money and says to one of them, there, that should keep you in curry for a few weeks. And it's like, yeah, and it should fill your English asshole with fish and chips. Fuck you, man. What are you talking about? You can't say that to me. And people just laugh it off. This movie, it's cheery about the racism. There's the first big chase scene where they're in cars and they're being chased through Indian marketplaces. It is staged with all the panache of Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo, and it is, again, racist. It is just screechingly racist. This is the 13th Bond film. Uh, This is the sixth Roger Moore. He would finish with uh, his next one, A View to a Kill. And I wanted to turn Octopussy off five times. The saddest thing I've ever seen might be the last 15 or 20 minutes of this movie where Roger Moore's in full clown makeup trying to defuse a, a bomb. And, oh, oh, my God. Uh, and he looks 150 years old when you put him in the clown makeup. It's what is it you're doing? Why ladies, are you humiliating James Bond? He is, ladies and gentlemen, the coolest spy of all time. I'm fine with it if you knock him down a couple of pegs. I'm yeah. like, that's fine. But why well, that's not what are you making Bond. James Bond a Bill Murray character? What are you doing? Terrible. It's terrible. And the the snickering title. I mean, I couldn't say this title in my house without getting a glare from my parents. And look, they've always been bad. I, this is, after all, the same film franchise where there's a character named Dr. Holly Goodhead. What about what do we have to say okay. about Ma- Maude Adams as the titular character? Uh, uh, first of all, that's a funny word. And secondly, there's nothing for her to play. Nothing. There's no character there. She's she's not a great actor. And the character is so sloppily written. View to yeah. a Kill at least has Christopher Walken. This has Stephen Burkoff. Yeah, it's got Stephen Burkoff and it's got Louis Jordan, who is. Whoo, whoo. You know what, though, with a better screenplay, I think <laughs> Louis Jordan fine, could have been a fine Bond villain, but not. Yeah. In- not in this one. This is this is the first of two horrible James Bond movies this year and the worst of the two. Part of the problem with this franchise, even now, even this far into it, is that it has always been in the same family's hands. And while I admire the fact that they have managed to keep a stranglehold on it, they have bent, broken and turned inside out James Bond in every possible way. And there are moments where clearly they not only had no idea what to do with him. But they had no idea why we even came to the theater. Let's move on. Well, now this is interesting because somebody's career 
essentially ended earlier this month uh, and for good reason and was reborn at the end of the month with this release because it was a monster, monster hit. How you doing? Eddie Murphy, the funniest man in America. Once you have a man with no legs, you never go back, baby. In Trading Places, the funniest comedy of the summer. I can see I can see! I have, I have legs! Dan Eckhart and Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. Some very funny business. Freeze, slimeball! Moi. Trading Places. Rated R. So let me ask you a question. Thought experiment. John Landis is coming off of the Twilight Zone accident, desperate to re- remake his career. Dan Aykroyd, who has not handled a uh, starring vehicle well yet, is desperate to figure it out. And Eddie Murphy doesn't exist. Does Trading Places work? Yeah. You think without Eddie Murphy, you think this movie still works? Because my theory is it's only a hit because people were desperate for the next Eddie Murphy film after 48 hours. I think Trading Places has about 15 or 20 funny minutes in it. And I think it is a movie that is predicated on a really unstable foundation. I like it a lot. Obviously, shot in Philly looks beautiful. I love the Prince and the Pauper angle, which is, you know, I love all that. I love it. I think Murphy and Aykroyd, especially once they team up, have a really fun chemistry together. I think Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic. I think that there's a lot of funny, funny bits in this movie. However, once it hits act three, I don't understand what happens. It, It feels like you had like a relatively sweet, vulgar, but well-intentioned comedy with a good heart. And then in act three, it turns into blackface, monkey rape, and completely nonsensical, confusing finale. You cheer because you're supposed to. You don't know what's happening. If you had asked me a week ago, I probably would have said this is one of the best comedies of the 80s. Revisiting it, my opinion being bolstered in, in some ways and then being perforated in others, I still think it's a very funny movie, but I have some problems with it that I I think that really you got to rewrite that third act, man. Part of my problem with it, I don't think the Dan Aykroyd character is terrifically funny. This sort of waspy Dan that he was doing at this point, not my favorite Dan Aykroyd flavor. And then I, I really I know it's 1983, but man, this film really leans into some stuff that makes me uncomfortable. I can't believe there's blackface in the third act, even as ridiculous as it's handled and as apparent as it is that Clarence Beek sees through what they're doing. Did, did nobody on the day of maybe take a minute to say, is there a different outfit we could put Dan Aykroyd in or a different joke he could make? Eddie Murphy, the Zimbabwe character he plays at the end, is ridiculous. And it's Eddie Murphy embracing that that version of him that I like so much, which is there's a lot of Eddie Murphy humor that's not edgy. Eddie Murphy was built for broad comedy. Eddie Murphy's the most amiable, charming dude, and, and and I like him so much. I think the stuff that works in this movie is largely based on personality. I like Eddie Murphy, so I like a lot of the stuff with him. But the end of the film is such a mess, and it kind of nails down my theory, which is that plot and comedy in the 80s rarely work together. Most of our favorite comedies work in spite of shittier how fast or indifferent plots and most of the ones that i don't think hold up are built the same way so it comes down to do i laugh enough to forgive that or do i not laugh enough to forgive that and that's a little frustrating i laugh when dan Aykroyd says la boheme it's an opera i laugh when eddie murphy does that fourth wall 
when he says bacon, like you'd find in a bacon and a lettuce and tomato sandwich. And I swear to God, it's one of the funniest moments of the entire decade. I'm not kidding. And I just wish that we had a, a more simple, streamlined, energetic third act because it really feels like yeah. that's where the movie is headed. And I'm having so much fun with the movie. And then it just kind of why is it funny that a, a monkey would ra- uh, that an ape would, would rape a guy? Why is that funny? Dude. Dude, that is the laziest, easiest joke that we're going to see a million times is when you are lacking another punchline, throw somebody in somewhere and get them raped. And woo, the hilarity. And this is one where they really lean on that joke. I will say it's our second Jim Belushi appearance of the decade. Our first was Thief. And here he kind of sets the tone for the Jim Belushi that we're going to know throughout this decade. And God help us because there's more of it to come. Not a big fan of Jim Belushi. Not a big fan. Uh, you know what? I am, however, a big fan of Drew. Would it be my beloved, the man with two brains? He's a world famous brain surgeon. The only time we doctors should accept death is when it's caused by our own incompetence. And late scalpel, pets and bomb scissors. Who wants only one thing in a woman? The cat out of here. The perfect mind in the perfect body. Steve Martin's out of control in The Man with Two Brains. I love this movie so much. And this is part of that run of great Carl Reiner, Steve Martin movies where they got each other, man. I don't know what it was. And I'd love to hear the story because I really don't know how they met. And I don't know what the connection was that led to the jerk. I don't know how who put them together. But whatever majestic accident collided Carl Reiner who was already established and, and had his own comic voice and his own and had been around for decades with Steve Martin. God bless it, because they are wonderful together. And as much as I love the jerk and as much as I am fond of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the one that I really just if I want to laugh my ass off, the one that I'll put on is the man with two brains. There is a lot of weird influences in this movie. And also, I just love like these simple, silly Mad Magazine airplane style humor. We're going to throw 700 bizarre jokes at the screen. And if you laugh at 25 percent of them, then you got your money's worth. The characters are called Dr. Hafar, Dr. Michael Hafar and Amil Mahay. Just wonderfully bizarre. She says, Drew, she says, who are those assholes on the veranda? No, no, honey, that's not pronounced assholes. It's pronounced azaleas. Those aren't assholes. Uh, Okay, so let's set it up. So Steve Martin is a scientist who is a brilliant brain surgeon who is involved in an accident where a woman who is the worst woman alive is hit by his car. He falls in love with her while she's in a coma, decides he's going to save her life, does this experimental brain surgery on her, saves her life, and then falls for her. As soon as she realizes that he's got money and who he is, she begins to work him. And she is just a manipulative monster played by Kathleen Turner. This is where I fell in love with Kathleen Turner. It's such a great comedy performance and such a dedicated comedy performance that you have got to give it up for her. She didn't care if you like what she is. She is brilliant in this movie. Oh, my God. Is so over the top, nasty and enjoying it. It is absolutely a joy to watch. And fully aware of her own power as a sex icon like Kathleen Turner. One of the reasons that she is so interesting in the early 80s is she is not the conventional sex bot. She's not the woman that you typically would have thought of throughout Hollywood history as the sex bot, but so in control and so aware of the value of how she plays on camera and so and has such a great voice and has such a great presence. She almost seems to be playing like 
the comedic version of the woman in Postman Always Wings Twice. 100%. She's asked to do some crazy over-the-top stuff. She's tossed into a mud pit in this movie. Into the mud with you, scum queen. I love, he's pulled over for drunk driving in, in Amsterdam. That's the best. The cop wants him to, what, do juggle while doing this, that, this. God damn, your drunk tests are hard. Damn, your drunk tests are hard is such a brilliant line. I love that line. And a great showcase for Martin. There's so many scenes where they lean on his physical grace and on how wonderful a physical performer he is without making it the whole point of the film. Martin has so many grace notes and so many beautiful little things he plays. And as a physical performance, unparalleled. He is so it's as good as the work he does in all of me, just very different. Like he is so in command. And so he is a great classic screen clown. I think Steve Martin is one of those guys who knows what the camera sees and so is constantly aware of it and fine-tuning things and finding the best way to play something. We got to throw in some love for David Warner. Oh my God. Bad scientist who gives, uh, who gives uh, Dr. Hafar the wherewithal to uh, perform the surgery. The lovely voice of Sissy oh, Spacek. Oh, she's great. Sissy Spacek is great in this. Yep, she plays the dismembered brain that the bit where he asks his the, the portrait of his ex-wife. <laughs> just a sign. If you don't want me to date this woman, just send me a <laughs> sign. And uh, there's so much stuff in this movie that's like the whole thing. It's just absurd on top of absurd. I love the way Reiner builds a reality and then holds to it. I love the identity of the uh, window cleaner killer. Um, there is so much weird stuff in this movie and Movies like this can often feel disjointed, but somehow this movie kind of has this this great narrative arc that it's playing out. And whereas I feel like movies like Trading Places sometimes fall apart in that third act and they just can't nail the plot down. This movie acknowledges early on that the plot's ridiculous. And so it's got just enough balls in the air to give you something to work towards without leaning on it like it really matters. Uh, what, what I like about uh, Steve Martin is that he chose odd stuff uh dead men don't wear plaid not a hit this film not a hit and then he would go back to carl reiner again they didn't make much money in another world steve martin or carl reiner would be like you know what this didn't work out bye nope they just kept making movies together because they liked it and they're great movies it's funny that this movie also ends with if i'm not mistaken a joke involving potential sex with a gorilla and yet unlike trading places this movie is in no way trying to make a really horrible animal rape joke or anything like it's so funny how like the same elements at the same exact moment in two different comedians hands and they come up with radically different ways of using these things you get those weird echoes sometimes when you're watching stuff in a row like this and you realize how different people play with stuff and this is what i want in comedies is just just make me laugh and man just go for it and now we close the episode summer has its big hit this time, it's War Games, and it's brilliant, says Joel Siegel of ABC TV. Roger Ebert calls it wonderful and gives it four stars. A high-powered thriller, says Newsweek magazine. And People magazine proclaims it as good as last summer's E.T. Don't miss the most exciting game on any screen. War Games, rated PG. I was so enraptured by this movie. I thought, oh, no, I really like War Games. I'm going to watch it, and it's like clunky computer graphics and silly things that don't make any sense in today's world. And while some of the technology is and fashion and hair is definitely 1983 dated, 
it is remarkable how prescient and how timely War Games still is. Wow. It's a well-built character movie. It's well-written in the sense that it's not predicated on like big set pieces throughout and they do, they're not doing the whammy chart that like Simpson Bruckheimer set up where every 10 minutes you have to have a big giant set piece or your audience gets bored. This movie trusts you to hang with a story that's just about a kid and a rapidly accelerating problem that he causes with his own curiosity. It's, it's Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy and they act like normal, intelligent, decent, naive teenagers. They're not sex crazed morons. They're not arrogant dicks who think they know everything they're flawed but they're realistic it's like an adult type thriller but it's infused with some legitimate innocence or wonder because the leads are teenagers and it's a great computer-based thriller cyber thriller as everybody knows war games is about a nerd who inadvertently kickstarts a countdown that could lead to a nuclear war uh, because he thought it was an online video game that hook alone must have just made producers salivate. And John Badham, fresh off Blue Thunder, could not pick a better director. I mean, I don't even think Spielberg could have done War Games better. Wow! Well, and here's the thing. It almost wasn't Badham. Like, this movie started shooting with Martin Brest, and there's a chunk of this film that was directed by Martin Brest. And they very quickly realized that he did not have the tone, that he did not know what this movie was. I gotta say, it must have taken a lot of nerve and courage to say, I I know this movie works. I just, this isn't the guy to do it. They needed that tension. And what War Games does so well is it never, ever deflates the stakes of this. It never plays it as a joke. It never downplays it. It gradually accelerates it in a way that feels realistic. It also doesn't go zero to 60 in one scene. So the movie really pulls you in and it works. And by the time you get to that final big set piece inside the mountain, you're on the edge of your seat because the movies earned it. Like a lot of good directors from the 80s, John Badham had a real gift for character actors peppered throughout this movie. John Spencer, Michael Madsen, Maury Chaikin, Barry Corbin, Eddie Dazen. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Eddie Dazen, of course. And the patron saint of 80s all over, one of his most famous and probably one of his best roles. Dabney Coleman. As the authority figure He's much more dimensional than you might normally expect. Dabney Coleman is the best in a movie like well, this. Well, I, I love everything that's implied about uh, John Wood's character and McKittrick and the, the whole thing that had gone on. And there's a lovely sadness to the character of Falcon, the guy who created Whopper in the first place. And and I love how that plays out. And yeah, the easy version of this movie is that McKittrick is just a shit and that that's all you let him play. And that Dabney Coleman could have come in and eaten that for lunch and been fine. This movie is smart enough that it knows that if you make these people human and if you give them just a suggestion of character and enough to play and enough meat to hang something on, then it becomes a better film because all of a sudden, you know, who's in danger of dying in a thermonuclear war? Human beings, actual human beings. And then it matters. What I love about this movie, Drew, is that in so many populist movies and so many big adventure and action movies and comedies, the authority figures are either obtuse or evil. And in this movie, a lot of the authority figures 
They're trying to prevent a nuclear war. These are not the villains. There is no overt villain in this movie. There's nobody in this movie who is encouraging this or who is behind it or wants Whopper to start a war. There's got to be an awful version of this movie where there is a bad guy who orchestrates this to try and make the war happen. And And be played by uh, William Atherton and he'd be uh, up on a satellite in, in his space station trying to cause a nuclear war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They caused an explosion. That's what struck me about this movie is that obviously I'm watching Dabney, the man, because true, he's first rate. They're letting him be three dimensional. He is yeah. not just the brusque authority figure behind the desk yelling at people. He's actually scared and yeah. trying to be a decent, responsible person. It's a wonderful film. And it I frequently will show these things to the kids, curious to see what works, what doesn't, what holds up, what they click with. And man, War Games was just just a huge hit with them. Like it man did it play and and the suspense holds up and I I think it is one of those films that manages to show that you don't have to goose it with artificial jumps and action and set pieces to keep an audience interested. Trust your audience. A movie like War Games shows that you can. Guys, next month, we're deep, deep, deep into the summer here. And whereas summer today, that is a good thing. I'm not sure that's the case next month because we've got another legacy sequel and one of the worst I've ever seen. We have got a part three that is, again, one of the worst I've ever seen. We do have a great comedy. We also have one of the most iconic comedies from another difficult artist that we're going to have to talk about. I can't wait for all of that and a glaive. We'll see you back here, July 1983.